Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome everyone back to another episode of uh, Contemporary Philosophy Global Conversations on the Mana platform. Mana is the Saudi platform for culture and philosophy. And today, we're extraordinarily fortunate to have with us Professor Edward Mashri. Edward is the Distinguished Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. He directs the Center for Philosophy of Science at, um, at Pitt, a very famous and important institution. Um, Edward is one of our leading contemporary philosophers. He is the author of many, many articles and chapters, some of which are extremely important, have helped found large areas of the contemporary research program for philosophy. Most notably, Edward is one of the, one of the founding parents of um, experimental philosophy, um, and I hope he'll tell us a little bit about that. Um, but his, his, his work concerns primarily questions in philosophy of psychology, um, general philosophy of science. He works on statistics, foundations of statistical reasoning, um, all kinds of extraordinary uh, topics. He has two very important books. One um, earlier on in his career uh, was directly in philosophy of psychology. It's called Doing Without Concepts. And uh, he's probably sick of talking about that at this point. But um, more recently, he has a book called Philosophy Within Its Proper Bounds, where he tries to discipline our discipline a little bit, make us behave ourselves and stay within our proper bounds, given the lessons of experimental philosophy as he understands them. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Professor Mashari to, um, to join us today. And um, yeah, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to, uh, to join you today and to be able to uh, speak to your audience. Very nice. So uh, the, probably the first thing people recognize about you, Edouard, is your beautiful French accent. So how did you, how did you end up um, coming to America and, uh, and uh, teaching, teaching philosophy over here and having your career here? Yeah, that's right. Almost 20 years in the U.S., not quite 20, but almost, and still speaking with a very noticeable French accent. It's remarkable. Um, so, you know, I was trained and I, in, in France, fully trained in France, my undergraduate career, my graduate career in France. And um, I somehow, I got a traditional French education about um, um, history of philosophy and a bit of continental philosophy until my PhD, when I turned more toward philosophy of science, philosophy of, of cognitive science. Somehow the, the transition was due to um, an accident. I spent a year at Boston University, uh, sorry, Boston College here in the USA. I was teaching French, in fact, at Boston College. Mm. And I discovered analytic philosophy. And I, I, I just fell in love. Uh, I fell in love partly because I was, um, I, I was somehow one of these lovers that get disappointed with the object of their love and get quite bitter. You know, I was very much in love with philosophy as an undergraduate. I decided to dedicate my life to philosophy, really a very serious intellectual commitment. And somehow French philosophy disappointed me. Mm. I, I did feel after a few years that it was not serious enough somehow. People, the stakes were not high enough. People were engaged in debate. 
Can you explain? Can you explain that a little bit? So it's it's it often it it's often the other way around. But uh, it, it it is true. But but I felt um, it was it was either too much history of philosophy and an unwillingness to engage with um, topics of uh, philosophy, as other topics of philosophy. So we were not theorizing about truth. We were theorizing about what Descartes says about truth. We were not theorizing about how to get knowledge. We were learning about epistemologists, the great epistemologists of the centuries. And I really felt I wanted to engage about first-order questions. Truth and knowledge and beautiful and the right. And I really got disappointed by French philosophy. At some point, I thought I was going to quit philosophy, really. Mm. The logic, I was also taking courses in aesthetics, uh, history of art. Um, But then I discovered analytic philosophy and I think philosophy has biases, but one of its virtues, no doubt, is um, at least the way it's usually practiced, it's, it's focusing on first-order questions. It wants right. to know what truth is, what knowledge is, what's a beautiful thing. And that, that somehow is the reason why I went to philosophy and I just realized, oh, that's why I love philosophy and I can mm-hmm. still do it and here's a way to do it. So I transitioned to analytic philosophy, a more analytically inclined philosophy from my PhD. Trying still at the Sorbonne. And then I was very lucky to meet Steve Stitch at Rutgers, who brought me to the US during my PhD and uh, allowed me to get acquainted to the American philosophical scene. And luck played a large role. I was lucky to apply for, apply for a job in the US, Pittsburgh, and to get it. The rest is history, as one says. Yeah, very good, very good. So you're known. It's it's interesting that you you talk about your attraction to an, traditional analytic philosophy, because at this point you're known as a critic of traditional analytic philosophy, right? So, <laughs> so the development of what we now call experimental philosophy um, is, in some ways, a reaction against what analytic philosophers had traditionally done. Could you tell us a little bit about um, what XFI is? I think people might have a rough sense, but maybe you could you could let people know, you know, what exactly it is, and and uh, and yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about your role in the development yeah. of experimental philosophy. So experimental philosophy, which, as you uh, suggested, is also called XFI in some context, um, really emerged now. Pretty much 20 years ago, as well, around the first years of the 21st century, um, with people like Charles Nichols or Jonathan Weinberg, Steve Stitch, my mentor, and Joshua Nob at, at, at the time, who was a Princeton graduate student at the time at Princeton. And all of us felt that in one way or other, some important questions in philosophy were really depending on empirical assumptions. And we felt two things, that philosophers were not quite realizing that their arguments were really hanging on matters of fact. And so we thought it was very important to bring that to the fore, to make, to make sure the philosophical exchange was really uh, very clear that some arguments were depending on some assumptions, which was just something that could be known empirically. And second, we also felt that philosophers were just, so to speak, begging the question. You know, they were just assuming that the world was one way rather than the other. But if it's a matter, if it's if if a question depends on a matter of fact, then and if we don't know whether this fact is real or not, then the right thing to do, we thought, was to use empirical tools to uh, ascertain what the facts are. 
And that's in a sense what led us to, to, to create this new tradition now 20, nearly 20 years ago, where we, did, where we decided to use some tools. At the beginning, they were fairly narrow tools, mostly coming from social psychology, psychology more broadly, to investigate social assumptions. Since then, the field has diversified somewhat, and we, the use of tools is broader than just um, the tools from social psychology. Great, great. So that's like first. Good. Yeah. So let's say, for example, in traditional epistemology, so epistemology is the study of knowledge. Yeah. In traditional epistemology, there might have been assumptions about how people understand the concept of knowledge and what, what the concept of knowledge is um, assumed to be. So maybe you could say a little bit about how, and this connects to your more recent work in the geography of philosophy, how basic intuitions about philosophical concepts, so sort of common sense assumptions, might vary from society to society, population to population, etc. So there is some sense in which traditional epistemology in the Anglo-American context had understood there to be a kind of common shared background frame for understanding, you know, what do people think knowledge is? And then beginning from there, one might engage in some sort of analysis or criticism or, or definitional project, et cetera. So maybe you could say a little bit about, let's take knowledge, for example, as a, as a case. You know, that's a great example. So um, indeed, epistemologists uh, have often assumed that people draw distinctions between various concepts. So for example, people are, people, epistemologists tend to assume that people think that knowledge, knowing something is not simply the same as believing something and having a true belief that there is something more for something to be a state of knowledge. Uh, and these assumptions are often the starting point of fairly complicated philosophical arguments. But they have to be true for the arguments to work. And it's actually remarkable that um, indeed, again, implicitly, not rarely explicitly, but at least implicitly, it, we have argued that uh, epistemologists assume these distinctions, these concepts, these intuitions to be pretty much shared by uh, a universal common sense. Of course, and it's, it's, here's a blame, it's not simply for analytic philosophers, but this, tradi this tradition of making assumptions about what common sense says as a starting point for doing philosophy is much older. You find it indeed in Aristotle. Right. I mean, if you read Aristotle, Aristotle always, pretty much always starts by describing the doxa, the common sense. And that's the starting point for doing philosophy. Um, and experimental, uh, experimental philosophers, in fact, have noted that, well, what is the common sense? It's an empirical question. And in fact, what is the common sense for Americans, or maybe Westerners, or maybe even a you know, subsample of Americans, uh, educated Americans, might not be um, a, a universal common sense. And there might be interesting variation to be, to be mapped. Or not. Uh, but the crucial point here is that it's an empirical question. Good. Whether, for example, the distinction between knowing something and, and just having a true belief about that thing is a universal assumption. Um, you found we brought it to the fore as a possible topic of discussion, and the debate is still going on. Yeah. So tell us about some of the differences that you've found across geographic regions, let's say, among populations and in, in their kind of common sense assumptions or common sense starting points with respect to philosophy? 
Yeah, so that's um, um, so there are, as you would expect, really both universals and variation. Let me just start with the universal mm -hmm. uh, because we started with knowledge, and I mentioned already the distinction between knowing something and just having a true belief about that thing. Now, at the beginning of experimental philosophy, we experimental philosophers were a little bit skeptical of the universality of that distinction. But I think what we've learned since then is that it's a very robust distinction that pretty much every language has a word for knowledge, different from the word from belief, that it's very easy to get people, even in small-scale societies, to draw the distinction between really knowing something and just having a true belief about that. So that's one aspect of epistemology, of common sense epistemology, that seems to be fairly robust uh, across, across culture. Here's another one that seems to be, uh, however, varying across culture. It's for the conceptions of free will. Um, so Americans uh, tend to believe, and Americans and Westerners more broadly, tend to believe that someone is free and responsible for her action if she's a source of, of the action, right? So it's really the idea that if the action comes from what's within you, you can be held free and as a result responsible for the action. If you did something wrong, then you, as a source of the action, are blameworthy for this action. Recently, we have published a paper in Frontiers uh, in, in Psychology, where we show that in uh, most, or in all the Asian countries we've looked at, that includes many places in China, Japan, South Korea, and a few other uh, countries in uh, South Asia. In fact, there's much less emphasis on source food as a condition for, for free will. And it fits with also what we know about uh, cultural differences in psychology. Uh, people in East Asia, in general, of course, there's variation among East Asians, but in general, they highlight context as a causal contributor to uh, action. By contrast, Westerners, and among Westerners, Americans, highlight the individual as a source of, of the action. So what we find here is subtle, and in, in some ways non-subtle variation in what the conditions for free will and responsibility are. And now it does matter a lot because a lot of philosophers happen to be Americans, and they're going to bring their common sense when they theorize about responsibility of free will, their intuitive common sense, often, not always, but often, as a starting point for philosophizing. Now, I'm not saying they stick to the starting point, but that's always that's the, the, the entrance point um, mm. uh, for, for doing philosophy about free will or not. Great. So in, in your recent book, um, philosophy within its proper bounds, um, you take some of these results from X5 and you try to work out the implications for the practice of philosophy, how you regard philosophy as needing to be restrained in some ways from kind of idle speculation of various kinds or maybe flights of fancy of various kinds. Um, maybe you could give me a sense for in light of for the effects on philosophy or how you think philosophy should change in light of the discoveries from XFI, in light, for example, of geographic variation, et cetera. So what should, what's, uh, maybe you could sum up your, your advice to philosophers from that book. 
Yeah, so um, I mean, the book is fairly radical, and uh, not everyone would agree with the conclusions uh, I draw. So, uh, as a uh, Latin used to say, "Cave <laughs> canem," be careful about taking my advice uh, uh, too seriously. Uh, but but the fact is, I believe that the amount of variation we found across cultures, but also the fact that Common sense judgments are very malleable. You can push people one way uh, or the other way by manipulating very trivial distinctions, distinctions that should not matter, right? So these two facts, cultural variation plus malleability, suggest that uh, we should, in a way, free philosophy from the shackles of folk intuitions. And we should not um, um, have philosophy depend on somehow what we take intuitively to be in and to the extent that the philosophical problem really requires these um, assumptions, these common sense assumptions, then my, my, my advice is so much for this philosophical problem. We should probably uh, try to reformulate the problem in such a way that we can philosophize about it without depending on, on common sense assumptions. So that's a radical proposal is that this idea, which is, as I said, a very long, uh, century-long history, that we should start with common sense, is in fact challenged as soon as you take into account the contingencies of common sense and also its frailty. Um, so that's really... Uh, and if you're a young philosopher, my advice is, in a way, be bold. And being bold in that case is, don't necessarily take the problems as the tradition gives them to you. Uh, there's always, in every, for every philosophical question that depends on common sense, there's a way to investigate that philosophical question that frees it from, um, from common sense. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's really the way philosophy should be done. And often that's the way the best philosophy uh, has been done over decades and centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the rise of, or the centrality of common sense in Anglo philosophy, Anglo-American philosophy, is a relatively new um, and new thing. So, um, and there, as you said, there, there are many ways to break free of the bounds of common sense. So traditionally, you know, we might have discovered, okay, well, when I go on vacation, the norms and the habits and customs of other societies are very different from my own. Mm -hmm. They do things that I wouldn't do, or, or uh, we seem to have a very different understanding of what basic common sense amounts to in terms of, you know, how do you greet guests who come to your house? How do you, do you take your shoes off when you go into a house, et cetera, et cetera. That, that kind of variation had been one source of the skepticism with respect to one's own tradition, right? right. That kind of intercultural content, but also imagination. So one of the things that you're actually quite critical of is the role of thought experiment in philosophy that you think in the book you describe that as maybe having gone a little bit too far that philosophers are too willing to entertain these exotic thought experiments hasn't that been another way for philosophers to push against common sense so that it's not just that we would look to science as a as a to provide criticisms of common sense but the philosophical tradition the history of philosophy has a range of different ways to to, to question one's own assumptions. Yes, so I think that's true. So I, 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 I entirely agree with the first part of, of your question. Traveling has been important 
in the history of philosophy after Montaigne mm-hmm. and, and the great skepticism uh, in uh, the uh, French-Italian Renaissance is mostly driven by the discovery of worlds, which are very different from the Western world at the time and actually leading to skepticism about social norms, about knowledge that was dominant at the time in, in Europe. So Montaigne is a wonderful example of this kind of, of skepticism driven by the discovery of the other, so to speak, uh, is the other of the time uh, for right. Europeans. Um, thought experiments, and indeed there are other ways to discover, to try to go beyond all common sense, whoever are ease, you know. I think the history of philosophy is interestingly another way to do that, provided you're not right. looking in the past to, in a sense, reformulate your own problems, your way of doing history of philosophy that I don't think is most useful, provided you're willing to read history and older philosophers as formulating somewhat different problems than the one you are used to. And in a sense, that's often a very good way to broaden one's philosophical imagination. So I think that's totally true that there are many ways to, to go beyond our, our naive common sense. So the experiments could be, but I do worry that in the same way as literature is bound by our common sense, um, so the experiments are also bound by our common sense. You know, so there's, I've got this view inspired by the psychology of, of reading that when you read a novel, you're given, of course, a very small description of the relevant facts. Mm-hmm. When you read something about you know, Sherlock Holmes, just to give a trivial right. example, um, you, know, you have some information about this uh, detective but you don't have any information about the tea drinking, you don't have any information about the street, whether cobalt or not. You're bringing your knowledge of the relevant history and time to feel that. So really you're bringing your common sense here to build a world that is uh, the world in which uh, the main character, for example, uh, Sherlock Holmes, is living. I do worry the same thing is happening with thought experiments. Our common sense is really limiting a little bit how broad we can go. Now, I, I'm, I'm, there are, you know, uh, counterexamples. I think there are cases where, uh, in fact, thought experiments have led people to investigate possibilities. But I think it's partly because thought experiments are used in many ways. Um, one way in which I use is more as tools of discovery. And I think if you just use them as tools of discovery for trying new ideas, trying new concepts, what would follow if in that situation I were to say that the agent is not responsible despite the fact that she seems responsible? Then I think this is perfectly, perfectly fine tool for inventing concepts. Mm-hmm. But if you're using them to, in a sense, uh, try to develop a philosophical system or so confirm some of your hypotheses about what knowledge could be or what responsibility is, rather than just as a tool for developing new ideas, I, I worry that thought experiments, in fact, are going to be bound by common sense and, in fact, limit how much, how much imaginative you can be when you do philosophy. Good. Yeah. That's certainly reasonable, a reasonable concern. Um, you know, when, when, uh, when I think about the effect that XFI has had on the practice of philosophy, in many ways it's had some really salutary mm-hmm. effects. And I think we're both old enough now to remember when philosophy was was driven by a kind of uh, focus on common sense and intuitions, et cetera. And in some ways, we're both kind of products of the reaction against that. So some of us went 
more uh, deeply into the sciences. Some of us took formal epistemology or formal methods very seriously. And then XFI was, was, you know, maybe the most prominent and maybe the most influential um, turn away from traditional philosophy. Um, I wonder, I wonder about this turn to science, and this would bring us to your, your more recent work. Um, we often hear people in, in the West say, okay, well, when we make policy decisions, for example, we should, quote unquote, follow the science. As though we could just read off from, let's say, the, the, the latest claims of our, of our scientific experts, what the correct policy decisions ought to be, et cetera. And we've seen, for example, currently that, well, there are genuine questions about not only the reliability of science, but also the relationship between decision-making and human values or the kinds of values a particular society might hold to. And we see variation, again, geographically, across culture and how people, how people respond to that. Um, and we see a kind of maybe less well-developed debate about values and what we should be caring about in the United States even, then um, maybe would be, would be warranted. So maybe we need a good debate in the United States with respect to the pandemic as to what our priorities really should be. You know, what should we be aiming for with respect to the harms to the young versus the health risks to the elderly and vulnerable, et cetera. We don't really have that debate. And in some ways, and this gets to your more recent work, that's because of the kind of centrality and dominance of the natural sciences. So tell me, tell me a little bit about this, because on the one hand, you could see the reaction to traditional philosophy as putting science right at the heart of, you know, the practice of philosophy. Whereas on the other hand, some of us want to be a little bit more, um, put a little bit more distance between you know the results of science and the important decisions that we have to make in in these extraordinary contexts. Right? So I don't know if that's that that's less oh, yes. a question than handling <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's, it's actually a, a a very interesting observation. So experimental philosophy has a maybe a scientistic feel to it. Um, sure. Because after all, you know, we are trying to bring some scientific methods to address some issues that are philosophical relevance, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's one might worry at times a certain naivety about how much we can learn by means of the scientific methods. Um, and indeed, um, you know, I, I, I do confess that for a very long time, I've, I've worshipped at the altar of, of science. You know, uh, I've, 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 I admire science I, in many ways. Science has been an incredible tool for learning about the world that's, that's around us and uh, has had tremendous impact, often for the better, not always, but often for the better on, on our lives. So I, I, I feel, in a sense, guilty of having had um, a relation to science that was maybe too much on the trust side. Mm. Uh, uh, my recent work actually uh, involves moving away from this. Um, um, trust, uh, this maybe blind trust in, in science by realizing how fragile science is and how difficult it is to take some scientific reports and turn that into actionable policies. Um, 
but but in, in, in independent of policy, and there's a question of how to translate from a scientific reports to policies, also independently of action, just how much trust we should give to science in the making. Um, yeah. And and I've I've, I've developed um, a form of skepticism, uh, thinking that the scientific process is extremely complicated, extremely messy, far from being efficient. Um, uh, and um, we should often uh, be skeptical of uh, most of what the scientific community happens to be producing at the frontier of, of, of science. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, we started with a bit of personal history. That's a bit of intellectual personal history where uh, after years of turning towards science as a way to improve philosophy, I've, I've brought my skeptical outlook away from philosophy itself toward, towards the science, uh, the sciences. Yeah. And um, what I'm trying to, to do right now in the book I'm writing is um, try to assess when and whether uh, we should trust uh, science and, and try to provide this assessment of um, the quality of science in the making. That's very good. That's yeah. It's it's so interesting to me here to, 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 to hear this sort of... Uh, how the relationship between science and these kinds of normative questions around, for example, truth and trust and value, how that's played out in your work. And I wonder this then in your more recent work, which we're looking forward to, um, this will give philosophy a kind of a critical role again in relation to the natural sciences that, um, I'm curious to hear how what what are the resources that the the critical philosopher will look to then um, as they do their work in relation to the sciences. It's, it's, so um, so it's, like, it's, science is not self-certifying. We can recognize that that science doesn't certify its own trustworthiness. So so we in a sense are doing that. But what are our resources when we engage in that? So I I. I the way I like to, so I think that's a really great question. The way I like to put it is that science does not come with its own interpretation. Right. Uh, um, scientists produce results, they produce papers, they produce information. Um, and we should always try to find a balance between trust and skepticism. Yeah. And I do believe that both parts of the society, there's of course, a trend of skepticism against science in the society, but bracketing that, that skepticism towards sure. science. There's also, I believe, a lot of trust in science overall in our society, and a slight, um, I believe, an animal philosophers, and not enough skepticism for, toward uh, what, sciences, uh, what the sciences produce. So we should bring more skepticism to our interaction with science. How to do that was your question. Well, I, I do think there are tools that we, we can uh, learn. I think there's this general education in understanding what good science looks like. And, cool. and, um, and that's really what we should learn to do. My feeling with respect to what philosophers like me, naturalistic philosophers, philosophers who think that good philosophy should stem from science and gravitate around science. My, my concern is that we've often been um, um, lacking the critical spirit and the assessment of what 
contemporary good science looks like. And we've taken too much science at face value instead of, of, of being critical. But as I said, we can learn to, to identify what good science looks like. Mm -hmm. and Great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this new book. And um, yeah, really fascinating, fascinating project. Um, let me ask you, by way of closing, something I ask uh, guests on the show. Um, what, what are your hopes for the future of philosophy? And maybe, maybe another way to put that, if you'd like to, is, you know, we, we have many viewers who maybe are young people who are interested in philosophy, who don't know how to get started, don't know what to, what to do maybe necessarily. Um, what do you hope for the future philosopher? And maybe you could offer a little bit of guidance also. Yeah, so um, my advice for a philosopher is don't do simply philosophy. I, I, I do believe uh, that the best philosophy is always outward looking. And it's not simply outward looking towards the sciences. It could be outward looking toward policies. It could be outward look, uh, looking toward political questions, toward political science. It could be outward looking toward aesthetics and the history of art. Um, my sense is the best philosophy, it's the most interesting philosophy I've seen. It's, of course, very sophisticated from a philosophical point of view. So no one should neglect developing philosophical skills and drawing distinctions and giving examples and counterexamples of bread and butter of being a philosopher. But I do think that philosophies as just inward looking get extremely dry and lack imagination, and in fact end up being um, a form of scholasticism that um, is um, um, of little interest, and in fact dies out after five to 10 years because people just get bored with that tradition. So my, my, my hope for philosophy is that as, as it is the case nowadays, maybe more than when you and I started doing philosophy, uh, that philosophers are going to keep being outward oriented, either toward politics or science or mathematics or logic or the, or the arts. Um, and my advice to any budding philosopher, any young person wanting to go into philosophy would be just do many things at the same time. And if you're interested in the sciences or in logic or in math, just learn, learn some science, learn some math, and learn some, some logic to a fairly advanced degree, because it's going to make you a better philosopher. That's my uh, nice advice. Edward, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, it was a great pleasure. Good conversation. Thanks again. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me, and this was a really lovely discussion. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.